Hello, Alabaster Jar listeners. Serene here. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Before we jump into this week's conversation, I want to invite you to join us for an upcoming special event. On Friday, October 22nd, the Center for Women in Leadership, a division of Northern Seminary, will be hosting Tove for Women. Tove for Women is a unique one-day event centered on Dr. Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's book, A Church Called Tove. Tove is a Hebrew word meaning goodness. In a world that is long denied, ignored, or flat-out rejected the voices of women, this important conversation will help us shape a future where the contributions of women are known and celebrated. You can join us in person or online. Check out the link in the podcast description for more information and to register. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is talking with Becky Tirabasi. Becky is an author, life coach, pastor, and speaker. She received her Master's of Arts with honors from Denver Seminary. She speaks to men, women, and students on a variety of topics, including prayer, leadership, balanced living, mentoring, and parenting. Becky co-pastors Viewpoint Church in Newport Beach, California with her husband, Dr. Roger Tirabasi, which they planted together in 2014. She is the CEO and founder of Becky Tirabasi Change Your Life and Burning Hearts Incorporated. And you can find her offering daily words of hope, instruction, and perspective with the Change Your Life TV messages on IGTV. Hi, Becky. Thanks so much for coming to uh, talk with us here on the Alabaster Jar. It's my pleasure. You are my hero. You've already heard this story, but our listeners haven't. I I met you, or I saw you, I'll say it that way, I saw you in 1998, we were probably each about five or six years old then, and uh, <laughs> and um, I had just spent a year in Kenya um, on a, a mission station as my family was over there helping to start a children's hospital, and it was a very tough year in a variety of ways, and uh, I, I really felt completely depleted. And so we were visiting our home church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and some of the women in the church said, there's a conference on prayer. Would you like to come with us? And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And it was one of your conferences. And, you know, the, let prayer change your life. I'll tell you that, and, and I'm not exaggerating, that conference did change my life. You challenged us to read and journal every day. And so I went back to, I, I covenanted with uh, one of the women at the church and every day for that next year, 365 days, we set aside time, was half hour for me every day to read, to study, to pray, to journal every day. And that started, although I haven't kept up 100%, I, I have to confess <laughs> since then, but it has started a lifelong habit of me daily reading and journaling my prayers. And uh, so it, it truly was life-changing. And I know my story is just one of hundreds of thousands of men and women that you have touched. So it 
it was a thrill for me when I was at Denver Seminary a couple of years ago to see that you were a student there. It's like, my hero, my hero, here she is. And we had a chance to, to meet and to visit. And, uh, and we've become friends. So thank you so much for coming on the Alabaster Jar. Well, it's easy to become friends with you. And um, that book, Let Prayer Change Your Life, is like a reader. It was my experience with being a person who wanted to pray and couldn't pray and being in ministry and feeling like I'm losing it here and attending a conference myself and hearing all the former presidents of Youth for Christ. And it was the 40th anniversary convention. So they were good old boys. And they talked about how prayer not only changed their lives, but as CEOs of an international and or national youth organization, it was the most important thing they could do. And I remember sitting there going, <laughs> I don't even do it. And so I, you know, I'm all in all the time, go big or go home. I make this radical decision to pray for one hour a day for the rest of my life at that convention in February, 1984. And that's been 37 years. And from that, it was quickly from that point, I designed a prayer notebook. And from the prayer notebook came the book, Let Prayer Change Your Life. And it simply is kind of my little phrase, learn to pray the right way. W-R-I-T-E, yeah, where you take your thoughts and pour your heart out to God. And I give you a little system, P-A-R-T, partner, part. My part in prayer is to praise, admit, request, and thanks. And you're going to laugh, but don't laugh. I was an aerobic instructor at the time and a cheerleading coach. So P-A-R-T was very easy to remember. And... <laughs> That was my part to God, and God's part to me was L-M-N-O-P, where I would listen, take notes on messages, and then read New Testament, Old Testament, and a proverb every day, which two years later, the one-year Bible came out, and that was the pattern, New Testament, Old Testament, a proverb, and a psalm. And so I became friends with the publisher. I had been friends with the publisher of Tyndale, and I've had a special edition one-year Bible that fits with my partner prayer notebook. And in one hour, like an aerobic class, you warm up, <laughs> yeah. you do your aerobics and you cool down and it takes an hour. And this is the, the funniest thing. You, you know my story. I was led to Christ by a janitor, but there's a guy in my church. He's a plumber. And I write my sermons every Sunday to reach the plumber, right? Yes. So saved by a janitor, preach to a plumber is kind of my little <laughs> motto. And but he does P-A-R-T-L-M-N-O-P. He gets that. He's like, I never knew how to pray. Now I pray an hour a day. Even when God wakes me up at four o'clock, I say, oh, no, I don't want to get up at four. And then he said, oh, I guess I'll get up at four. <laughs> He's just so simple and pure about I'm learning to pray that we sometimes forget how uh, relational it's meant to be and how uh, joyful and inspirational and how your eyes can open brand new and how can, how conviction can come so swiftly and softly and not beat you up as much as make you go, I'm changing this. And so it's a pattern I've never let go of. And I've taught literally hundreds of thousands. And now it's to the point where the moms who heard me 23 years ago, their kids are in college now. And I just spoke to 500 college students, same thing. They all do P-A-R-T-L-M-N-O-P because 
it's it's not elementary. It's easy to right. And it's I, I remember um, in that conference those uh, couple decades ago. Just your comment about it. Just talk to them. Don't make it harder than what it than what it is. Just talk to them. You did have a conversion. Tell us tell us a little bit about about that. Well, I I think it's part of why I'm so passionate about evangelism still. Um, I really was a girl from the Midwest who went to a mainline church and a large public high school that was right across from my church. And all the pieces didn't fit uh, to be a cheerleader, which I was, and an athlete to drink and party and have fun, which back in the day, you know, was a little bit edgy. Um, I didn't realize I was playing with fire. My father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. And for me to drink at that young age of 15 and 16 was more of a, a like a keg light up, lighting up something big on fire. And I became an alcoholic and the threads of a, an alcoholic are very common. You can drink more than anyone else. You, you can uh, drink the day after you have a hangover. You can drink on a hangover. All these things that my girlfriends couldn't do, I could do. And I never thought I was an alcoholic, but by 16, I was blacking out, passing out. And I had been a, a straight A student, captain of the cheerleading squad, three athlete sport, three sport athlete. And by the, by one year of drinking, I had slid all the way to graduating a year early from high school, numerous reprimands, um, running away from home into not just drinking, now drugs, smoking dope. Once I dropped out, I did have an interlude there, a couple months, and then I I went to college. And I went young, I went early, and uh, I really got into drugs, alcohol, and sex, and all the things you say in junior high you're never going to do. So by 21, I just have this crash and burn, end up at a bachelorette party, I have a boyfriend I'm living with in California. I'm in a bachelorette party in Ohio. I wake up the next morning next to the quarterback of the college hometown football team. And everybody knew who he was. And the town was small enough to know everybody who went to high school and that college. And it just was a humiliating day where I knew I was an alcoholic and I didn't have to go to a meeting or read a book. I just was certain, you know, I, I was possibly pregnant. I didn't know by whom. And I'd been raised to go to church every single Sunday. And as soon as I left home in high school, I just didn't go. It just wasn't, I don't want to say relevant. I don't know what it wasn't. I don't want to, you know, presume I knew. I just knew I was running. And on the day I returned from this wedding, I, I there was a subpoena waiting for me for a car accident. I had been in a year earlier while drinking. And I think it was, you know, I call it my come to Jesus moment. Um, I wanted to take my life because I thought I cannot get out of this mess. I can't get out of if I go to jail. I don't have money. My parents don't have money to fly me home to get a lawyer. I, I'm in real trouble. I can't stop drinking or you wouldn't do this stuff. And I would say in the morning, I'm not going to do it. In the evening, I did it. Uh, it was so hopeless. And when I got to the court hearing, I decided I'd go to the court hearing and then figure out how to take my life. They had a lawyer there for the car insurance company. 
And he said to me, and just not spiritual terms, he said, if you lie on the stand, you'll be crucified. And that was it. It was a simple thought. I have to find God. I have to find God. So I went through the court hearing. Did you hit the car? Yes. Did Were you drinking? Yes. Do you remember? No, I don't remember. And I, I left the court hearing and I, I drove to a church and it was the kind of church I'd been raised in as a, a young girl, confirmed, baptized, the whole bit. And I'd gone to this church on Easter and Christmas, um, but that was it. And there was no one there but a janitor. And he, he was the janitor of this church because he'd been fired as a school teacher for alcoholism. Wow. wow. Of course, he didn't you know, know my story at all. I just walked in the basement of this church and, and just said a simple, I've got to find God. And he said a simple back, let's just pray. He, you know, he wasn't a theologian. He was a newly saved, born again Christian. And we had this amazing one hour prayer. I tell this sometimes, not always, but it was a Lutheran church. And so he grabbed the Lutheran hymnal that at the time still had the 19, the 1500s baptismal ritual in it, where you denounce the devil. And he had me recite that. Would you renounce the devil? And I thought, this is crazy. But I did it. I renounced the devil. I did the whole recitation, you know, recited the whole confession. But I would tell you, here, here's the beauty of this. I quit smoking and drinking, uh, swearing, living with my boyfriend, smoking dope that day. Uh, within a day, the janitor found me a place to live that wasn't with my boyfriend in a back house of a woman who went to that church. He bought me the Bible on tape. And I began to listen to the Bible every single night, like it was rock music, like for a couple hours. And I, I was so transformed that, you know, people around me absolutely thought a miracle has happened because you were such an addict. You had such a foul mouth. You were so anxious. You were so broken. You were so emotional. And now you're like happy in Jesus. This is weird. And I just became the kind of Christian that Christians don't even like to be around. I even make them <laughs> uncomfortable, especially older Christians. They're like, no, you're just too happy. You're just, it's not this real. It's not this good. I'm like, oh, yes, Jesus loves me. I was like one of those praise the Lord Christians. <laughs> it well, was and you still great. are. I mean, you still. I still well, that's the beauty of this, isn't it? I still am. And I think it's that hour of power that I spend with God because life is hard and offers disappointment and culture is worse than it ever was. And having more responsibility as a pastor and a communicator, um, a mentor doesn't make it any easier. It makes right. it all the more important that uh, the Holy spirit is full and all over you and keeping you alive. Exactly. exactly. So I, I go with that. You know, you mentioned that you had talked with very recently, what was it, 500 uh, young women, college age women, and talking with them about holiness, which is another word that, uh, boy, seems to get uh, pushed to the side sometimes today. We kind of think of it as being holier than thou. We don't want to talk about holiness or purity is another word that has um, had some bad connotations in the last 
decade or so. Um, talk a little bit about the how you feel about that and your burning heart contract that you uh, you've talked with me about. Well, Lynn, it, there, this is a really interesting moment in my life in the year 2000. I was I was very successful at this point. I'd, I'd spoken on a lot of events and venues and conventions to people on prayer. I really was having fun more than anything. I loved to communicate. I had a I had a way to present eight hours in prayer that you walked out of there and you were like, get me to my quiet time. You were all fired up, right? And I, I could do that. It was the same thing in every city. So I really got good at that. And about 2000, I spoke to 20,000 high school kids on prayer. And it was a seminal moment for me. Um, but it was also a sad moment for me. It was at a youth convention and it brought up in my life something I really wasn't aware of that women couldn't communicate in every venue because they were a woman. And that was like earth shattering. And I thought, I'm leaving speaking. I'm leaving youth ministry. I'm, I'm withdrawing, retreating. And it was the summer of 2000 and Bonnet Bright wife of Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade, was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, sent me a book, Bill's Life, Amazing Faith. And it had a story in it about Henrietta Mears, a game-changing powerhouse of a woman, publisher, uh, retreat center founder, pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian for 400 men and women who were powerhouses themselves. And it was this little story called 1947 Fellowship of the Burning Heart, where four people, after a talk overnight, um, spent all night in prayer and asked God, what could they do for their nation to bring uh, a revival, to bring people to Christ? It really was a pure motive, evangelism. And they determined, they wrote a contract between the four of them. We will spend one hour a day in prayer and Bible reading. And as I read the story, I thought, oh my gosh, I've done this since 1984. And they will live in sexual purity. They called it chastity. I thought, well, that was a conviction I had uh, as soon as I became a Christian in my lifetime, even as a married woman, fidelity, faithfulness. Okay, I'm all in sobriety. I've been sober uh, 30 43 years now. Uh, and I thought, I get that as a leader. Um, my husband is in sobriety out of sacrifice. I'm in sobriety out of uh, need to be sober, uh, out of commitment to that, um, and to lead one person to Christ a year. And the kicker of the story is Bill Bright, who was one of those four people when he died after founding Campus Crusade for Christ, led 50 million people through his organization to Christ. And his commitment was one a year. And his organization lasted 50 years before he passed on. So it, every year, a million people came to Christ. And I believe from his intention to lead at least one person to Christ every year. And he trained people how to do that. So I called Vonette. I'm like, Vonette happened to the burning hearts? Who's doing it? What happened? She said, well, nobody did it. We founded Crusade and moved on. And Henrietta founded a publishing company and Forest Home. And I said, 
I'm going to repraise it for the 21st century. Some more power to you. And I wrote a book, The Burning Heart Contract, which one publisher published and didn't want anymore. He's like, I don't want it. And another publisher took it and helped me, Tyndale House, uh, publish it because it it is a 21-day adventure in prayer, purity, and purpose. And the purity piece or holiness piece that 1947 was probably as difficult as it is now, was at least clear. Holiness is not an option. It's something God calls us to, and it's a reflection. And I didn't realize when I wrote this book really what I was teaching, but even these 500 college girls came back to me with something I didn't intentionally put into the book. It was, you've taught me about the Holy Spirit. I thought, I did? I'm like, okay, because that's all it is. More, I love this J. Oswald Sanders quote from his book, Spiritual Leadership, which is one of the all-time greats. He said, you're as full of the Holy Spirit as you want to be. And it was evident the day I came to Christ, I thought, I, I want to be full of the Holy Spirit. And that little prayer, renouncing the devil, I think just meant you're out. The Holy Spirit's in. Devil, you're out. Evil, you're out. Sin, you're, you're, you're not allowed back in. And though it always tries, um, the Holy Spirit's like standing guard. You're as full as you want to be. And I want to be. You know, I, I always tell kids, I was a good drunk. I was a great drunk. I was a dancing drunk. I am a dancing Holy Spirit-filled person. I love to be full of the Holy Spirit. I think it gives them encouragement, enthusiasm, excitement for God. And I always say, you can feel God. You can feel God all over you. Um, so you don't have the, the shame. I think that's what so many women, when they hear purity, they think shame. The You know, that it, it actually, I'm not enough um, or... I, I wasn't good enough or I'm not pure enough, but you, it, mm-hmm. it's the craziest thing because right. I was filthy. I was filthy. And I always say, when I ask the Holy spirit to come into my life, um, the, the day I asked Christ into my life, I said a simple prayer, forgive me for my sins, fill me with your Holy spirit, make me new. And that filling, um, was like a cleansing, like a, a sudsy hot shower over dirty, filthy girl. What's bad about that? That was amazing. And I walked away feeling clean, looking clean, acting clean. Everybody's looking at me like, you're not clean. No, no, you're not. And I'd say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. They're like, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. The janitor told me. And they're like, oh my gosh, where'd you get this theology? You know? but then, and you have purpose then too. And that's the other thing you mentioned, right? Is prayer and purity and purpose. And boy, well, if we ever need a purpose today, um, yeah. Lynn, the simple uh, piece of that that they put in, and so I structure it into the book is lead one person to Christ every year, a family member, a roommate, a dorm mate, a, a teammate from a sports team. In other words, if you're intentionally looking to lead someone to Christ, back it up a step. You're going to live a holy life because they're going to call you a hypocrite otherwise. And the only way you can live a holy life is if you spend time with God daily in his word and prayer. It's not rocket science, but it's definitely a purposeful, intentional way of living as a young and new believer, as well as an old believer who you can get jaded and you can get lazy and you can get, you know, every new idea coming at you. How do you have your quiet time? I just, I don't, nothing new under the sun for me. It's if I get my hour, I'm on fire 
And, you know, even the little kids come to church, they've got this little song. We're going to hear Pastor Becky and she's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little bit about, about leading a church because that's not something that a lot of women do. They certainly often don't get encouragement for that. Tell us a little bit about your journey in that. Uh, you've told me a little bit before and it hasn't been a, a smooth ride for sure. I really wanted to get off the road. As I mentioned, I was like a war, road warrior. 10 years in youth specialties, 20 cities a year, 15 years, my own ministry and women of faith, 20 to 25 cities a year. At 50, I'm like, ay, 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 I got I to gotta stop this. And I came back to my church. And my church, in fact, had asked me to speak at Easter service, the big 10,000 people venue, because I have a story. I've spoken at a Billy Graham crusade. I was used to large venues. But it became very clear I couldn't be their pastor or a pastor on their staff. And I, I got a little feisty. I said to my husband, you know, we've gone to this church 10, 12 years. And I'm going to find a new church. He's like, what? You know, like I'm the marriage pastor. I'm like, I know it is a problem, isn't it? He's like, oh, my gosh. Our pastor told us when we got married, it's like marrying a tornado. You just hold on to the tail and like, hey. <laughs> Um, but it, it was a little bit of a conundrum. Our, our young head pastor and the board, one of the men on the board, we had led to Christ. And it was like a powwow, how to solve this problem. And they decided to plant us as a church. And that was in 2013, 2014 was our first year. And it was amazing. I was then licensed in the state of California. I enrolled in seminary and I cried my first day of seminary. I can cry right now thinking about it. It was so um, amazing to think that God would ask you to be a pastor. And it, it felt like so responsible. It had such a responsibility. And I love every minute of it. I do love to preach, but I love to hug at the back door. When I was a little girl, my pastor hugged everybody leaving at the back door. So I do that. And little or big, um, I preached this week on spiritual warfare. And a first-time man at my church said, well, that was a, 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 a touchdown with a backflip. I'm like, Woo. I guess that's how men say it. it was <laughs> <laughs> but there is this sense I preached on women in ministry. I didn't really want to preach that sermon but someone had written a connection card in our church and said, what do I do about 10 of my friends who've come to this church over the past year and left because we have a woman pastor? What do I do with this elephant in the room? And my first line of the sermon was, there is no elephant in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I went from there, uh, honestly, with your help and encouragement, Lynn, because I feel like I'm finally not, I, I'm definitely in a world that is complementarian where I live, but the world is not complementarian. Half the world is egalitarian, I'd say, and so is half the church. I just happen to live in a place where no, there's hardly any egalitarians. And yet, um, I believe that the beautiful blend of being an evangelist and a pastor is a way to keep the older Christian fired up about bringing people to Christ and the young Christian quickly informed 
of their responsibilities of Bible reading and being full of the Holy Spirit and learning to pray and not dilly-dally for five years and dink around and then say, wow, I'm kind of backslidden. You never have to go there. But we're a small church, <laughs> I think, because we have um, kind of a high call, high standard. And I heard that from one of my old bosses, Jay Kessler, former president of Youth for Christ and uh, president of Taylor University. He said he knew A.W. Tozer. And he said there was no church A.W. Tozer preached in or was a preacher at that didn't get smaller. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that uh, the narrow uh, gate, right? Uh, there is that that sense in which... Um, uh, even the gospel writers indicate, you, you know, when, when you're asked to take up your cross and then follow after Jesus, it, you know, it, it can feel at times like you're taking up your cross. I think what you're showing us, though, too, is there's such a joy in the Holy Spirit. We really can live. We can live in that. You're not just ministering in California, though. You're also on the East Coast in D.C., at Lead House. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, this is another one of those great ones. Um, I'd been a pastor not very long, and someone said to me, um, I don't know how it happened. I went to Washington, D.C., because I'd been there many times for the National Day of Prayer, but somehow I got invited to, you should, oh, I know, it was a seminary class, shadow a CEO. And I said, I want to shadow a chaplain of the House or the Senate. Of course, you know, I always think this way, like, why not? So I wrote to both of them, called a couple friends, and both said I could shadow them. And in so doing, I found out that a pastor, only a pastor, can be a guest chaplain. And so my congressperson nominated me to be guest chaplain in the United States House of Representatives. How cool. Oh it God. was so cool. And on my way there, I had this little moment with God where I felt he said, don't pray this if you don't mean it. And you only get 140 words to pray. Wow. Wow. Yeah, they cut you off right there. And I kept reading my prayer and I, I felt I would pray it my whole life if I could pray this prayer. Mm -hmm. And I prayed the prayer. And the very moment I was done praying the prayer, I felt, you've got to come back. You've got to come back to pray. And a long story made short, I came home that weekend, called a college girl, asked her to go to coffee with me. And I said, I think I'm supposed to go back to pray in D.C. Don't really know how to do that, but I think I need financial help. So we wrote a letter to 12 women across America because I really couldn't ask my church. I have a small church. And um, these 12 women each sent $1,000 in the in that week. I thought, okay. I'll go once a month, I'll get a hotel room and an air flight, and I'll go pray. And that was like my big plan. And the first week I was there, you're not even going to believe this, I met one congresswoman because someone like bit with a big mouth said, this is Becky Terbasi, and she came to D.C. to pray. And the lady looked at me and she went, well, if you want to pray, do you want to pray tomorrow and walk around the Capitol with me? And I went, oh, this must be why I came to Washington. And I said, sure. Okay, fast forward four years. That woman and I are roommates in Washington, D.C. I have a three-story, beautiful 1776 house. I saw it. Yeah, at least the uh, uh, outside That's of it. Scary. I was there, and then you showed me a virtual tour. It is beautiful right there at the Capitol. A half area. block from the Capitol, and all we do is pray with congresspersons. 
Uh, we pray on Wednesdays, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., and noon. I think we're adding a Tuesday and a Thursday morning now. And this has taken four years for nothing to become something. Yes. Um, and my husband, I remember when I said, I, 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 I'm going to get a place in Washington, D.C., he said, Becky, you don't have a job in Washington, D.C. <laughs> How are you going to get a place? I'm like, I don't know. But I think God wants me to. And the miracle story is I probably raised a quarter of a million dollars in three days which I, my husband has even said to me, how come you can't do that for our church? What, what, happen, what happens with that? I'm like, I don't know. And it's, it's this purpose. It's a, a purpose to pray. It's what I'm to do. It's very non-public. No one knows about it. It's not on the web. It doesn't have a, you know, I don't even have a business card and I've been there for two years. It's just a call on my life to pray with leaders in our nation that they might humble themselves and help our nation turn from its wicked ways so that God will heal our land. And it starts with us. So I do a lot of praying with people in Washington, DC. Yeah. And what are, um, I bet that uh, our listeners would love to know how they might also, as, as you, just meet so many different people, both in uh, in the D.C. area, but like the young women that you spoke with. What are some of the things that you've discerned that those of us who are praying now can can bring before the throne of grace? It's very difficult because of politics. So I always try to cut above it, cut all that out and pray scripture Pray for people by name, pray for their needs, pray for our nation. Pray, pray like Isaiah prayed, pray like uh, uh, Paul prayed, pray like Jesus prayed. I really try to not live in our culture as much as um, I pray scripture a lot. In this hour of our great need, begin again to help us as you did in years gone by. And I hear them repeating that then in their prayers. Um, because if you pray for people and positions and politics and parties, you become divisive and you can't come together. People don't come together. We have to pray for unity. We have to pray for maturity. We have to pray for humility. And we have to pray for purity. You know, a pastor gets to hear everybody's complaints about everybody else. And there's a lot of impurity, unholiness that from all I can gather from the word of God, unholiness and prayer don't really achieve what you want to achieve. So it's bringing God into the situation. Well, and unity, I just think of the call uh, for in Paul's letter to the Philippians, for example, you know, and humility all throughout uh, Jesus's entire ministry calling for that. And I love your uh, suggestion of praying scripture Sometimes I feel, you know, I, I just don't have the words. Well, that's all right. You don't have to make them up. They're right there in front of you to just bring that uh, before the Lord. Yeah. The other thing I do is I read a lot of classic books. In fact, as soon as I got out of seminary, I like went back to my 50 books on revival and prayer. And I just keep reading them. Ian Bounds fires you up to pray. Half my church, you know, they're like 20, 35-year-old they like, I read Oswald Chambers now. The other one says, 
high radium balance. I'm like, my husband and I are getting to these people, you know, because they're good um, classics on how to pray with great faith and deep, um, well, it's not deep, it's persistence. I had a congressman call me the other day because I called him. I'm like, hey, we missed you at prayer meeting. I'm like, I don't let them slip, you know, more than a week before I'm on them. He goes, Becky, you are so persistent. And I thought, well, I guess I am. But when I read Ian Bounds, there's a whole five chapters on persistence in prayer with God, I think, and with others. If we're going to see revival in our nation, Every book I've read is you can't give up and it doesn't matter how few people are praying. Yeah. Yeah. And you just have that vision for revival. That's the Holy Spirit work, not our work, the Holy Spirit's work. Well, I love Finney. Finney's explanation or definition of revival is simply a new obedience to God. Mm. There you go. That's it. And another person said, it's not when the roof blows off, it's when the bottom falls out. And really, without confession and repentance, we're not going to see revival. So I think the burning heart contract is one way in. You spend an hour a day with God the first week, and then you add to it purity and holiness the next week. And the Holy Spirit illuminates in each life. Uh, for example, my life would be jealousy or uh you know, unforgiveness, maybe toward men, right? I'm forever going back there. Like, oh, really, Lord? Moving on. Um, and then that lead one person to Christ. I mean, my plumber came to Christ. It's one of the most exciting things. And he did the burning heart contract <laughs> with me and my husband. And my husband's like, I better do this with Jim. And he's looking up the <laughs> dailies and he, Jim's texting him. He's like, what do I do? I'm like, hey, you do it with him. <laughs> it's it's just this place of anyone can be on fire for the Lord. Anyone can live a holy life. Yes. Amen. That's a great, uh, great call, a great promise, a great, uh, our great hope in the Lord. Thank you so much, Becky. Uh, it's just been so delightful to talk with you, to visit with you here on the Alabaster Jar. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, I love you, admire you, and I want to go to school with you. <laughs> we got a spot for you here, Northern. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar. If you have been enjoying our weekly conversations where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry, go ahead and subscribe so you never miss an episode and share today's conversation with Becky Tirabasi with a friend who you think would be inspired and encouraged. If you want to keep up with what Becky's doing and these ministries that we've talked about today, be sure to head over to her website, beckytirabasi.com for more information. We'll see you right back here again next Tuesday.